0: Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Joining me today in the studio is Dr. Adrian Parr. Dr. Parr is the Dean of the College of Design at the University of Oregon. She is an internationally recognized environmental, political, and cultural thinker, as well as an advocate, author, and filmmaker. On this edition of This Is Design Intelligence she'll give insight into the security of our water systems, the impact of extreme climate on water sourcing, and how the design community can bear a positive influence in solving these collective challenges. Welcome to this edition of This Is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Well, thank you so much for joining me on This Is Design Intelligence today.
1: My my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's it's an honor.
0: We are dealing with this major question of resilient security, and we're thinking about it across many aspects of our life. And nothing, nothing is more essential to human life, if not every other life, than water.
1: Yeah, um, exactly.
0: Can go without food for a long periods of time, but you can't go without water for very long.
1: Yes, you can go without food for up to one month, but we can't survive longer than three days without water. So that's an alarming number.
0: (laughs) It, it, It really is. And it's not just access to water, it's access to clean water. And we know that a couple of billion people around this world are not having access to rational water, to water that's filthy, actually, is what they do have access to and and that's not just in, we'll call it, emerging economies. It's even in our country that we are not taking care of ourselves appropriately. I think that we take things for granted.
1: We certainly do. And I think, you know, in the U.S., this is starting to hit both the radar of, of governments as much as it is individuals and, and households And to sort of speak of the safety of the water in the US, when I was doing some research on on just sort of trying to get a grapple on sort of just how many contaminants we're exposed to on a, a daily basis in our average US drinking water system, it's alarming to note that the Environment Working Group pointed out in a report that they produced two years ago now, back in 2021 in the middle of COVID, that US drinking water systems have approximately 320 contaminants and that's 56 new chemicals since they last brought out their report back in um, 2019 And, you know, some of the contaminants that we're talking about here are really, really troublesome. For example, radioactive material, there's metals, there's arsenic, there's pesticides, there's um, synthetic chemicals or or what are commonly called forever chemicals that don't naturally break down over time. And they require specialised filters to be removed from our, our water And some folks might sort of think, well, what's all the fuss about that? Why why be worried about something like that? But these sorts of contaminants, especially if if you're regularly consuming them, can lead to really dramatic health challenges like birth defects and decreased fertility, liver damage, cancer, for example. So, I mean, this is a serious topic. And I, I think it's one that we collectively have to recognize as being an area of growing concern especially when you're talking about issues of you know uh, environmental resiliency and resiliency and security on the whole
0: i am deeply concerned that this is what i call a back shelf issue across mm-hmm. most of the design community it is yeah, not something absolutely. where it's not front shelf it's back shelf if it, if it's on the shelf at all it's not typically discussed it certainly is in the engineering community around folks who are putting in uh, engineered water treatment places and, and creating infrastructure for water. Uh, uh, but we're not certainly not seeing it in the architecture or the interiors discussion that I'm aware of, and I'm kind of aware of a lot of stuff.
1: Yeah, I think part of that is also because up until fairly recently, Even in the US, it's been an issue that has impacted communities that tend to remain invisible and inaudible on the national political stage. And so these are communities that I've spent quite a bit of time in. For example, our um, Indigenous Peoples communities, which are disproportionately impacted on the reservations with contaminated water, drinking water supplies. But there are approximately 2 million Americans that are living in a home that doesn't have adequate plumbing for tap water and toilets. Now, that that's an alarming number that should really, I think, be on the radar of designers moving forward. But, you know, our Indigenous communities, and here I'm thinking of um, the Navajo community in particular, I mean, they're living on land that has over 500 abandoned uranium mines, and they're all suffering from dangerous levels of uranium and arsenic in their drinking water, and their health has suffered as a consequence. So, I mean, I think now that it's becoming more of a topical issue, especially as the climate continues to change, it's becoming one that is becoming more visible and audible. And thank goodness those more impoverished communities in the country are getting the attention that they need and hopefully uh, the design solutions and the engineering solutions they need in order to rectify those challenges. But, you know, when you mentioned the state of the world's water resources being moving in sort of a critical direction, I do think that the design community, especially if they work hand in glove with the engineering community about around this, can certainly be designing built structures that just do some very simple things like, you know, as a matter of course, install, you know, low flow shower heads or install water efficient toilets. And at the same time, be focused on trying to create built environments that are designed for rainwater harvesting and wastewater recycling and spongy surfaces that, you know, enable rainwater to be captured and filtered so that it can replenish our groundwater stocks. This is something that I was looking at in the uh, watershed urbanism exhibit that you saw in Venice a few years ago. So there's things that we can be doing.
0: It's interesting. I was just reading a report from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency of the United States that was showing that we had 18 extreme weather events hit the United States in 2022. And uh, those, those 18 extreme events cost our economy a little over $165 billion in losses. Mm. And this is not an exception; it's only gaining momentum. How do we look at extreme climate change and its impact on water sourcing?
1: Mm-hmm. That's a terrific question. I mean, we should just note that you know climate change is impacting every aspect. Of the water cycle, so when I, I say every aspect of the water cycle, like I'm talking about evaporation, transpiration, you know, condensation, precipitation, and even collection, and it's doing this because air temperature and air circulation uh, patterns are changing. Both of those impact the water cycle, so it impacts where rain falls, how much rain falls, and when it falls, and. So, for example, the more frequent and intense storm activity means that some areas are experiencing greater flooding and folks might think, well, then that's large amounts of water. But what happens with greater flooding is that it overloads our infrastructure, which is already ageing, and we have difficulty collecting it and and cleaning it and making sure that it remains potable. And then as the climate continues to warm, the world's glaciers are also melting, causing the sea levels to rise, but droughts to also become longer in other parts of the world. So, for example, you know, we've heard a lot about the drought in California. And if we think about the sort of stress that's being placed on the river basin that runs from Colorado through to the Gulf of California, we've got a situation there with that 1,400 mile river system running dry many times now uh, before it reaches the Pacific Ocean. So, for example, in the US, that, that Colorado River Basin now is one of the 14th most stressed river basins in the world. And there's 30 million plus people that depend on that river basin in the US for their water. And seven states receive water from that river basin, which totals you know, approximately 20 percent plus give or take of U.S. GDP. So there are dire economic consequences as well as the health and vitality of the communities that rely upon those water resources that can be directly connected back to to climate change as well as obviously, you know, issues to do with supply and demand and the mismanagement of those water systems. So, you know, as the climate begins to change, our groundwater resources are also being impacted. And that's what I think is really, really alarming for a lot of people working in the water sector Um, because with the seasonal variations, it impacts the length of time that those groundwater reserves are recharged and those climatic variations impact how much uh, water and the quality of the water that recharges those groundwater reserves and all of this is making contributing to this bigger gargantuan problem of our our water reserves becoming stressed
0: You know, I and I'm sure you've seen this, what's going on in Arizona. Uh, I think it's a couple Mm -hmm. of hundred thousand homes have been planned to be built outside of Phoenix again. And it has come forward through a a study that seems to have been done but had not been released prior that we don't have enough water to support that kind of building. And uh, extraordinary, right? Extraordinary. And what gets me is... When is enough enough? I mean yeah. the state is actually considering and evaluating a plan for ocean desalinization plants to be put in and pipelines proposed to bring water <laughs> to bring water from the western coast over to Arizona to support another hundred to two hundred thousand homes. What are we thinking here, folks? I mean, at the end of the day you have to say is there a possible other place to build these homes where there is the right equilibrium between natural resources and the human domain
1: yeah i mean that's a real real danger what's going on in arizona at the moment because there i mean the science is already showing that those reservoirs could drop so low by 2025 that uh water's no longer going to be able to flow past Hoover Dam to Arizona, California, and Mexico. So it's not just Arizona's problem in doing this, it becomes a regional problem. And I think this is, we have to sort of begin to think about these issues in a multi-scalar way, because it's not just that individual community that's placing that area under stress. It's placing several other states under stress as well, because water, I mean, the boundaries that human beings create around states and nations, for example, are artificial. Water does not subscribe to those boundaries. So if one area becomes water stressed, the area next to it across the boundary line is inevitably also going to be suffering at the same time. So there's a collective stress that is incurred as a result of activities of this kind. So it's that, for that reason, we need, you know, stronger national conversations around this, but we also need transnational conversations around it because ultimately anthropogenic activities are changing the water cycle, which is impacting all of the world's water resources. And so Arizona is, is, is one example, I think, of Just how much this can move beyond the boundaries of uh, state borders and national borders eventually uh, to become a transnational problem. And we need to develop a transnational conscience, I would say, around these kinds of topics.
0: It's a fantastic term, the idea of a transnational conscience. I was just speaking to an, an audience recently about adopting a strategic mindset. And one of the things that I noted in my talk was that arm's length distance is good, yards away is better, and a stone's throw is best. And I meant that is that distance always yields inclusive perspective. In other words, it, it mitigates a myopic inhibition to be able to see problems. And when we are myopically focused on our backyard, we see our backyard. But when you, like what you were just describing, when this becomes... A larger global community problem, then we zoom that lens out to see that a, a decision made here has implications there, right? And, and I think that's what you're calling us to. You're calling us to this larger conscience to look together at global solutions. We are we are citizens of the exact same planet. We are not living on different planets, but we've been operating that way. I'm I'm feeling a little desperate as I'm talking here. I'm worried about our water. I'm worried about access to it, sustainability of water supply, of the safety of water, of the inequities that we're seeing, as you were describing earlier, with the indigenous population around water. And then as water becomes more scarce, of course, that raises the specter of armed conflict or water wars, like like we read about in the 1800s when one guy had a ranch and he cut off the water flow to the ranch down below, and you literally had water wars in those days. Am I being silly when I say that that's a possibility in this future?
1: Well, it's certainly a possibility given the direction that we're currently um, on track for. But I do think at the same time, it's so important that we don't give in to despair. We do have solutions. We also have incredible advancements in in the water sector with new technologies that enable us to, you know, introduce all kinds of heavy filtration systems. Um, I think we need more education. In this, this area so that people mm. become more conscious of their water footprint. So what I'm trying to get at here is I think the first step is to, just as you're feeling, is there is a problem. We need to be worried. We need to wake up. We can't, you know, continue at this pace with the kind of consumption patterns that we have in play around our scarce water resources and building environments in a way that are not water sensitive. And that I think that's a really important one. The more and more that the urban population is expected to grow, there's uh, pitfalls and benefits that can come with that, right? Because you've got larger sectors of the population moving into denser environments, But it's only a benefit if those environments increasingly become more dense and they don't sort of engage in suburban sprawl and that as they become more dense, they're designed in such a way where they're collecting water, they're Reducing the amount of impermeable surfacing that they're using and dark surfaces, which we know are connected to more water evaporation and higher heat island effect in cities, for example. So there's things that designers and engineers can be doing right here, right right now, today and moving forward. I do think we need to codify them into legislation so that people are required to be doing these things as they're designing uh, new settlements and and densifying um, settlements that we currently have. But there can be light on the horizon line is what I'm trying to get at here because we do have strategies. We've spent quite a lot of time, both scientists and designers and engineers, hydrologists, you name it, policymakers at UNESCO and UN, who are all very well versed in what we can be doing better in this regard. Uh, we just have to have the will to do it.
0: I think you're right, yes. And um, we have to get to a place, I hear what you're saying, is not to be alarmist, but to be legitimately alarmed, which will drive mm-hmm. an action around our, our collective action. When we think about governing bodies, whether it's the federal, the state, the the county, the city, the metropolitan areas, it is often a precarious because things even like this become politicized as opposed to just civil. How do we, as a design community, better communicate and educate the governmental and regulatory bodies around us in a non-alarmist but in a serious way about taking action accordingly how can we pragmatically bear a positive influence in this checkerboard of of uh, variation across those governing bodies what do you think adrian can can we do as a design community to influence governing bodies accordingly
1: well actually i think design futures council is really well situated in this respect because you're engaging in conversations with the entire design community in the US and now internationally as well, as far as I know. So I think you've got tremendous resources, but you've also got uh, the possibility to have tremendous political power, both in terms of being able to lobby Governments to start thinking about this more and to be being proactive in the face of the problem, uh, bringing together some of the best and brightest in your design community to to work with Design Futures Council. You could be, you know, perhaps writing a white paper on this that then gets presented up at Capitol Hill as a way to inform those that are in positions of power, because not everybody who's our local representative. Is sensitive to issues around water resiliency and scarcity. And so, for those of us who are aware of these challenges, it is incumbent upon us to be able to bring it to their attention and to hold them accountable too, because we are electing them into positions of power to represent us. And I would argue, not just to represent us here in the present, but to start to become more future oriented in how they think about their political position and the power that they hold in those political positions. So, For example, you know, I'm thinking here about the EPA, right? And the EPA has has gone through several challenges. It was basically gutted of its power for a a period there politically, which was not only unfortunate, but I think it set us back quite a bit. Um, But the EPA has a list of substances in its Office of Water that it's required to monitor, right? And I'm just giving one example here. And that list is from 2016, And so, therefore, it's out of date. It only covers a relatively small number of contaminants under 100 that the agency regulates. But you compare this with the 85,000 plus chemicals that are part of the Toxic Substances Control Act, then it really poses an interesting and urgent political problem and public problem that just, for example, the EPA has to update the legal limits that it sets for substance amounts and the combinations of those substances, because a lot of this is now based on outdated science, right? So that's just one example, right? And that's a government agency that does have the power to do something about, you know, the 320 contaminants, for example, in the US drinking water systems that I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago. So I think... You know, lobbying and uh, raising awareness about this on the hill is is really one effective way to bring about change. But as that's done, it happens as a result of the design community having come together and shared and articulated their collective intelligence around measures pragmatic concrete measures that can be taken to change the ways in which we design our built environments to be more water sensitive and in the process upgrade those ageing and leaking water infrastructures and also provide our communities with very sort of tangible measures that they can adopt in their households to also be part of solving this collective problem. So what I'm trying to get at here is it's a collective problem that requires a multi-pronged approach of which the design community is an integral part of that.
0: It's a a fantastic response and and charge to us as an audience. Um, and I would like to pick up this conversation with you, particularly how we could collaborate on on how the Design Futures Council and its larger voice of design intelligence could have a bearing on this. Uh, and I really thank you for throwing out that gauntlet <laughs> to me to, to, to run with that. I do have a, one more question for you. And I was thinking about this because it was thrown to me, and I honestly did not have a response. And it was, of course, we've watched these extreme events going on in California with the amount of rain and flooding. It's unbelievable. It's an unusual thing has occurred there. And so much was coming down. And the question came to me, you know, the Californians are always without water. Are they capturing this water? And, That's a good question. And I didn't, yeah. I didn't know whether there were facilities that had been proactively built as a just in case it ever floods here, uh, we could capture the water. Do you know?
1: The the floodwaters that they're experiencing at the moment. Yeah. I really don't know. I mean, I know that it's been prioritising groundwater recharge and some stormwater capture and reservoir storage. So as the waters come in, it certainly replenishes those reservoirs. So that's one thing. But the issue around um, the groundwater recharge would require them to have the right sorts of infrastructure in place that yeah. enable that groundwater to be Recharged, And I don't have a lot of faith that that would be happening because, I mean, the EPA did report that stormwater in the U.S. is one of the fastest growing sources of pollution as well, right? We have these large amounts of runoff, and as a result, as the water runs off impermeable surfaces into storm drains and sewers and ditches and waterways like lakes and streams and even beaches um, and groundwater reserves. all that runoff collects pollutants. So it would also mean that their built environment would have had to have been dramatically modified so that all of that runoff is not being contaminated and in particular is not being contaminated by um, pollutants that are very, very, very challenging to remove out of our potable water resources, things like gasoline and fertiliser, just to name a few, not to mention like medical waste is another common one, believe it or not.
0: We have scratched the surface only on this very large, but perhaps most essential of questions. Adrian Parr, thank you for joining me on this edition of This Is Design Intelligence.
1: Thank you, Dave, for having me. I really appreciate the conversation.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of This Is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knable. This has been a DI Media
1: Group production.